Hello, and welcome to the Dalehurst Writing Show, the podcast that debates issues relating to writing, publishing, and storytelling, and I am Dalehurst. And before we begin with our discussion for the day, allow me to bring you the latest news in the world of literature. The British author Susanna Clarke took home the 2021 Women's Prize for Fiction, winning with her second novel, Piranesi. The novel is the follow-up to the famous Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. First released in 2004, the prize, judged by a panel chaired by Booker Prize winner Bernadine Evaristo, includes £30,000. The original manuscript of Beatrix Potter's Tale of Squirrel Nutkin is going on display for the first time. The story, first published in 1903, originated in the form of a letter written to entertain the child of Potter's old governess. This letter and the manuscript will be displayed at the Beatrix Potter Gallery in Hogshead in Cumbria. And the comedian Peter Kay has revealed he is writing his third autobiography after a break from show business. The first instalment of his autobiographical series still holds the record for the biggest-selling British hardback autobiography of all time. The book has sold more than two million copies worldwide. And, uh, well, there we have it with the news there, but here are some new and upcoming releases from some big names. Uh, Fans of the Thursday Murder Club will be happy to hear that its second instalment, The Man Who Died Twice, by Richard Osman, is coming on the 16th of September. And uh, already out on the shelves are The Heron's Cry by Anne Cleves, which was released on the 2nd, and Beautiful World, Where Are You? Uh, from Sally Rooney, which was released just a couple of days ago on the 7th of September. And that's it from me on the news and new releases, so let's get on with the main podcast. So this edition is dedicated to one of my favourite subjects, villains, or rather antagonists, the characters we look to for mayhem, chaos, manipulation, violence, murder, and in many cases some of the best lines of dialogue in a story. The antagonists in my books, for example, are among the creations I am most proud of, and I'm uh, looking forward to exploring how to craft such characters over the course of this episode and joining me on this occasion is the writer Josh Finer. Hello Josh. Hello Dale, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. How are you? Fantastic. Happy to be here. We're delighted to welcome you. I mean, you were quite, you were sort of quite keen off the mark when I started um advertising this podcast a few months ago, sort of coming forward and say, "Oh, I'd like to come on, please." Um yeah, it's pretty rare to talk about literature. Mm-hmm. outside of like because i went to uni but ever since then it's been pretty rare i see well hopefully we can uh give you a a sounding board for the next uh 40 minutes or so um now before we head into the proper part of the discussion i like i do with all my guests i wanted to give you the chance to tell us about any literary and or creative projects that you might have on at the moment if applicable yeah i definitely have a lot of stuff going on but mm-hmm. Nothing super that I want to talk about. Just some poetry, etc. I see. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm pretty bad on the promotional side. No, no, These no. algorithms for promotion. <laughs> 
we'll crack straight on in that case. Uh, um, so I'll begin <laughs> by asking, Josh, do you prefer heroes or villains, whether as a reader or as a writer? I would say normally as a reader, I prefer heroes mm-hmm. because the narrative perspective nearly always follows the hero. And if I like a book, I end up liking the hero because it's kind of how the story is filtered. Unless it's like Harry Potter, in which is I'm not a big fan. But... <laughs> no, I mean, I always use Harry Potter in it. I, I was writing something once and I gave it to a friend of mine. And he said, well, I don't really like your main character. You've got to like your main character. You've got to like your your lead character. And Harry Potter is where I turn when I think, actually, that's not really the case because uh, mm, Harry Potter, for, for all his virtues, comes off as quite uh, arrogant and uh, quite angry uh, a lot of the time, you know? I mean, I'm sure with good reason, but, you know, he he's not a perfect main protagonist by any stretch so yeah i agree mm, you know so uh, so that's what i mean and this is the thing this is what we're going to sort of come along to a bit later on in the program that uh, a lot of authors well a lot of uh, writers and readers alike are all about giving lists and formulae for how to create characters and plot lines and genre etc etc when there isn't a formula for any of it because if we yeah. were all following the same formula, all the stories would and all the characters would be the same. Very true. Mm. But when it comes to uh, writing characters, like whether they're heroes or villains, I think that there tends to be like you you, get, you don't really just write one. No. Because they're juxtaposed to each other, so they're kind of connected. So they're either like a mirror, like uh, just to use Harry Potter again, like Voldemort is a pseudo mirror for Harry in some ways, and then completely dichotomous in other ways Mm. so i feel like when you're writing them you kind of compose both at the same time sure yeah no i mean that makes sense and sort of hit the nail on the head with the way that harry potter and and voldemort yeah they're the way they juxtapose one another to use the word that you uh that you employed i mean i myself i am more of a villains writer i think i mean obviously i have created plenty of good characters as well in terms of what i prefer to write and what i enjoy most in terms of writing are antagonistic characters i think it's just you get so much i don't know you get so much more of a license i guess i feel anyway because you can give them the chance to do something good even if it serves their own motives necessarily you sort of can play around with their characters more than whether they're a a hero type character where they're sort of locked in that sort of serving the will of good and i mean if they do anything bad or evil or ill-advised you know it has to have some you know it's it's seen as out of character and you have to sort of address that in the story i guess i feel a bit more restricted when it comes to heroes i think Um, yeah because if it's a, a villain and they do something good mm. within like the narrative that could potentially be some form of like manipulation yeah so you never know if that's delib- like actually good or like playing at good for their own purposes yeah exactly like, I you have a lot more freedom i do agree with that mm. yeah and I th- and I mean, not that i like to say that uh, oh you know i prefer writing villains because it's easier i just think it's 
much more fun, for want of a better way yeah. of putting it, I think. It's just so much more fun to have the choice to make them as nasty or as violent or as, like like we say, manipulative as, as we like and uh, sort of see what happens off the back of it. Mm. So, yeah. No, have, that... you, have you read uh, Lolita? By I haven't. Do you know roughly what it's about? I think I'm ashamed to say I don't. Lolita. Oh, it's just I have like, heard of it, of course. Um... It's like epistolary narrative, kind of. He's like writing his confession to the police about how he's groomed this like girl, and it's like a reprehensible character. Okay. And like, when I was I was reading it, that's what I'm reading at the moment. And I was thinking about the podcast because uh, I was reading last night, and I was just thinking like he's a strange character because he's kind of the protagonist, but he's also a villain because it's from his perspective, and he's mm. obviously trying to frame himself in a good light, but he's doing morally reprehensible things yeah and if you haven't read it we, we don't need to go further into it but i just thought that that would have been like a quite interesting because it's very strange mm. i haven't read anything like it yeah 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 <laughs> i'd recommend it it's very mm. strange <laughs> no well i mean i'm trying to sort of improve my uh sort of my sort of uh become better read these days and trying to cross off a list because I, under, you know, I do, by for all intents and purposes, I understand Lolita is a well-known book. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll have to add that one to the list. Anyway, coming to a point that I said, uh, yeah, as, as I said earlier, I'm very much an advocate for the idea that there is no set formula for writing any character, regardless of the position they fill in a story. However, I th there are a number of factors that contribute to the creation of a good antagonist, I think, and uh, ahead of this episode I did a bit of a research and uh, found what I believe to be one of the best and most cohesive lists of those factors, lists in... Uh, so, th and this is from the website of, an, of the author uh, Jerry Jenkins, and it's presented as a checklist. Now that's, import that's important to remember that it's meant to be a checklist. Now, I'm going to rattle off the entire, all the points, and I want you want to know from you, Josh, how many of them that you actually agree should always be in an antagonist. So here goes. He's convinced he's the good guy. He has many likeable qualities. He's a worthy enough opponent to make your hero look good. You and your reader like when he's on stage. He's clever and accomplished enough that people must lend him begrudging respect. He can't be a fool or a bumbler. He has many of the same characteristics as the hero, but they're misdirected. He should occasionally be kind, but not just for show. He can be merciless, even to the innocent. He's persuasive. He'll stop at nothing to get what he wants. He's proud. He's deceitful. He's jealous, especially of the hero, and he's vengeful. We've already had one of those points, I think, where we say, yeah, he has many of the same characteristics as the hero, but they're misdirected. That goes back to what you were saying about the mirror Yeah, idea. the mirroring, yeah. I don't think many of those are necessary. Because if you take, for example, like uh, Big Brother from 1984, mm. you could argue that the organisation itself is the antagonist. Yes. And that would strip away many of those kind of traits yeah 
and that definitely adequately serves as an antagonist in itself. But if we go, maybe if we go through them one by one, so we can talk a bit about each one. Because mm-hmm. I can't remember the whole no. list. <laughs> I, do, I well, don't have eidetic memory. <laughs> when I uh, when I copied and pasted it into the script, it didn't look like that many points. But as I was going down, as I was uh, reciting it, I thought actually you can see the fear in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking, oh my god, how many of these actually are there? Well, anyway, yeah. So the villain, he's convinced that he's the good guy. That's the first point. Ah, uh, well, I'm not. I don't know because if you take like the concepts like there's different archetypes from like the research I did like there's something called like the classic villain mm. which is kind of like a moustache twirling Sauron evil for the sake of evil type mm. character yeah yeah so deliberately trying to bring the world into darkness because that's where they belong um, yeah again we refer to think people like Voldemort I mean was he convinced he was the good guy? I don't it's think unlikely. so. It's quite unlikely. Mm. And I don't think Sauron thinks that he's the good guy either. No, no, no. He knows he's um, evil. And, uh, I mean, the that, that point actually takes me out of literature and brings me more to Star Wars, I think. Um, in one of the... Uh, I mean, I, I hate to quote the episode three... I was about to call it the third film, but uh, rather the episode three. <laughs> a line which was, from my point of view, the Jedi are evil. So that sort of rings true that uh, Anakin Skywalker thought when he turned to the dark side, he was actually doing the right thing. Yeah. In that particular scenario, anyway. That's where I sort of get drawn to from that point. Yeah, because I guess some people can be so destructive that mm. just doing evil is enough if you know what I mean, like maybe they have like such a hatred for the world that they believe that it would be a good thing for the world to be over. Mm-hmm. Like there was, um, I, th- I think they're Russian, a character called Pans Ram. It was actually a real person. There's a book. He wrote a uh, bibliography. It's called Pans Ram. And he tried to start like, the, he tried to make the nuclear war happen, like the Cold War. Okay. And he was actively trying to create tension between America and Russia because he wanted global destruction and the reason for that is because he had had such a life full of suffering that i thought he my my interpretation is that he believes that it would be better to remove suffering by just ending everything so i guess that's his justification for good but yeah you, you kind of get into the existential area of what is good and what is bad <laughs> and can you have overarching truths and everything <laughs> like that I've, I must say, I have never heard of this. I take it this is is Karl Panzram, yes? Um, I think so. I think it's. Yeah. Let me have a quick look. An American. He looks like it. Oh, he's American, I guess. Yeah, an American serial killer, rapist, arsonist, robber, and yes, burglar. Yes, that's the guy. Welcome to the Dalehurst Writing Show. It has now become a true crime podcast, but within the <laughs> realms of literature. Um, he claimed to have committed 21 murders, much of which could not be corroborated, and over 1,000 acts of sodomy of boys and men. Mm. So, definitely a colourful character, and his um, autobiography... No, was it his autobiography? I called it his bibliography, wow. <laughs> I called it a bibliography earlier. <laughs> I knew what you meant. Yes, it's his autobiography, um, the, A Killer, A Journal of Murder. Uh, which is now definitely going on my Amazon reading list. It's for research, academic purposes. Never mind. The only issue with um, 
an autobiography, but a character like that is that they have a kind of a vested interest in lying about oh, yeah. their life. Of course. Because it's like, yeah, they get more infamy, so yeah, it's quite exactly. strange. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is why they take four. I mean, he died in 1930, and the book wasn't released until 1970. So, yeah, I think they have to uh, sort of uh, imagine all the red tape they have to go through before they can bring that to the public. Wow. No, I'm st- I'd still be interested to read it, uh, as I said, for sort of academic purposes. But yeah, no, what a wow, what a guy, what a guy. Indeed, yes. <laughs> well, uh, that brings us wonderfully over to the next point, which is he has many likeable qualities. I don't think we can say so much about Carl uh, Pan's Ram in that case. Oh, in terms of like the narrative, their bad qualities can be likeable because there's a point later on that says like when they come on stage, the um, the reader enjoys it. There's mm. like, one of the points further down. Yeah. I think those two things are connected because if you if you didn't enjoy the presence of the villain, it would yeah. just be like sections of the book that you just don't want to happen. Mm. And if it is kind of like a hero versus villain narrative, it would kind of undermine the entire thing. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, I I don't think it's so many likable qualities, but relatable qualities because i think relatability leads to likability anyway if, an, yes. if a reader can relate to the antagonist for feeling xyz then they're going to form a, a sympathy rather than uh you know thinking oh how pathetic of you x what you know this that and the other um when quite frankly they could have been feeling the exact same thing half an hour earlier um yes in a similar situation so yeah i think in uh, i feel like we're just correcting Mr. Jerry Jenkins now on the list that he's published on his otherwise well, another thing, lovely I was, website. I would like to correct the consistent use of the male pronoun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's an old list. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I it is probably pre sort of gender identity equality. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There used to be a lot more lexical asymmetry than there is now. I uh, I would like to go on record as apologising to Mr. Jerry Jenkins if he now gets a load of transphobic <laughs> complaints off the back of uh, any boycotts off the back of this podcast. It was a, uh, you know, I went to I went to his website. I took his list because it was by far the best and most detailed and cohesive. Well, anyway, uh, the, <clears throat> he is a, he's a they rather they are a worthy enough opponent to make the hero look good. So I guess that means in defeat the hero will look good. I kind of like it sometimes when the villain wins. I know that defeats probably the object of the good versus evil story uh, format, but... uh, I haven't actually uh, read many narratives that end with the death of the hero or when the the villain wins. I haven't haven't actually read many of those. See, it lists 1984 here. I don't remember it like that necessarily does, does the guy die at the end does he get taken away from the ministry of truth and like tortured i, I can't know. remember <laughs> well here's another one it was uh no country for old men i believe which had a very very good uh film adaptation as well uh with tommy lee jones and javier bardem and javier bardem this is oscar-winning role playing anton chigurh and chigurh definitely wins this one. Oh, he certainly doesn't die. He certainly, you know, doesn't 
get his just desserts really he just carries on being his merciless self after the novel and the film uh, both end another one as well is um one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, is a is an example of where the the main protagonist oh, yeah. um spoiler alert does die at the end uh whereas the main antagonist nurse ratchet while she is considerably taken down a couple of pegs she's still you know there's no there's no bringing her to justice she uh again sort of uh, allowed to carry on her uh, her demonic ways her experimentation with electrolysis. Yes, indeed. So, <laughs> so yeah. I mean, going back to the point again, uh, that the hero, uh, the, uh, sorry, the villain is worthy enough an opponent to make the hero look good. I mean, I, again, as I say, I sort of prefer it that they're uh, they're even more a force to be reckoned with, which is satis- which could be satisfying on two counts. Either the hero goes out in a blaze of glory in an attempt to win a fight that they couldn't win or they do end up achieving you know against all odds managing to topple this sort of crazy villain one or one or the other i think i think they leave they sort of pave the way for a much more thrilling climax than the standard ending fight scene swords crossed and uh yes they uh, they just end up killing the villain as predictable an ending as that would be i th- i think it's it would leave me guessing more, personally, if you know we we had uh, something different happen for a change, and uh, the hero is at less of an advantage. Yes, because like obviously I, I read a lot of high fantasy, and it's pretty standard where everything just is the same. Yeah, <laughs> they always overcome the because pro- they're the prophecy child or whatever it is. So, okay. Yeah, chosen one. <laughs> Chosen ones. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised nobody decided to come up with a different term for that as well. That's a another episode entirely of chosen ones and stuff mm. like that. Uh, so yeah, and this is coming on to what you were saying. You and your reader like when the villain is sort of on stage or in the scene or wherever they may be. And again, I think and what you were saying, I think it comes down to relatability. You know we enjoy when they're there because they're going to do something that's uh, you almost want them to i think you almost want them to kill someone or you know or say yeah. you know and manipulate another character who especially someone that you don't particularly enjoy reading i think i can't think of an example right this minute but they you know get to pull the puppet strings along a little bit and that in turn moves the character development and the plot development along uh, together you've got to want them there if you don't have a good villain, a villain that p- people want to read, then you're kind of doing your story wrong, I guess. Yeah, and then um, in in stuff like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, they have like villain trackers in a way to like, like for example, Harry's scar when it starts to burn. Mm. As it burns with more and more frequency, it's like it's building up to some form of conflict. Yeah, if you know what I mean. So, like, even though the villain of Voldemort isn't present, literally, they have, like, this pseudo-presence through, like, these kind of either the, the burning ring or the burning scar. Does yeah. the ring burn? I think, uh, it, I think it, it just becomes... They get closer, right? I think it just becomes heavier and uh, it manipulates him to expose itself 
yeah. manipulates Frodo to sort of expose the ring so that it can get back to the can get back to Sauron is how I is what I understood to happen anyway. Where are we? Oh yes. Uh the villain they are clever and accomplished enough that people must lend them grudging respect and the point that follow is, follows it uh is that they can't be a fool or a bumbler and I think those two sort of go hand in hand that yeah a stupid villain is is not so bad when it's children's fiction I think because in that respect they are sort of serving a comic relief as well but the best villains for me are always intelligent and more often than not one step ahead do you agree yeah I would say so because I can only think of like one construction where a bumbling villain would be like good that's like in a scenario where maybe it's like a parent or like a boss in an organization and they're just incompetent but they're like this figure of power that the protagonist just can't overcome because of arbitrary reasons like they're a child do you know what i mean yeah that's like the only thing like having like a stupid mean parent or like a boss that's incompetent that's like the only two scenarios i could like think of where maybe having them not intelligent would be okay mm, i mean but i would yeah. generally say smarter is better <laughs> yeah. smarter and more powerful <laughs> I, I would say so yeah no but i mean going back to what you were saying yeah i mean a, an employer for example who as you say is more or less incompetent and thoughtless or whatever and as such they can still commit atrocities that can compel good drama in a story you know oh this stupid boss doesn't know what he's getting in for but because he can i'm gonna lay off 50 staff including the main protagonist and this sets the wheels in motion for an uprising or something along that along those lines and he doesn't come to realize his stupidity because in the story of Game of Thrones, for example, a lot of characters refer to Cersei, Queen Cersei, as stupid. Or indeed as her father, Tywin Lannister, calls her, you are not as smart as you think you are. So, I mean, that sort of follows that, as you just described. That sort of follows that tack. That uh, arrogance comes into play, and we'll come, into our, we'll come on to arrogance a little bit further down the line. That's one of the things I have prepared. And we've also mentioned that they should occasion well it says they should occasionally be kind and not just for show now i think it's more a case of they could be kind and not just for show they could be kind like you said earlier and as i agreed for more sinister purposes to be manipulative and if it yeah. is genuine kindness then it needs to come back to the story needs to be explained or at least addressed that that is out of character for them mm. but at the same time it, go on for them to just have acts of kindness i've not really seen that i like i can't pinpoint anything i've read where there's just like like let's say they're like the arch villain and <laughs> they're, they're plotting the demise of all of these people or like mm. a terrorist bomb threat and then it cuts to a scene and they're like oh no this cat is doesn't have a home let me feed it and nurture it yeah. i guess like that like in like a james bond maybe or like austin powers you have like the character like the evil villain with like a cat that they stroke but mm. it's just a bit i don't know it's a bit i mean if it's to address some form of irony i mean like you say just addressing then a super villain but takes very precious care of a cat i mean that harkens back to uh to nazism as i have uh 
discovered recently uh, uh, through researching my current work in progress that while the Nazis were perfectly happy to uh, commit the acts of uh, human terror that they uh, that they did they were actually shockingly very fond of animals and uh, had outlawed things such as um, being cruel to your pets being cruel to dogs for example that could like let you have like a four-year prison sentence or something and then there were other things I read that uh, they either explored it or they don't they actually outlawed this shows how posh I have been going recently uh, the suffering of lobsters when cooking lobster they had to be pre- if they were going to do it they had to prep them in a certain way so that the animals didn't suffer so I mean I thought that was quite amazing for people who were uh, you know shoved living people into ovens that they were willing to uh, sort of uh, say right, well we draw the line at dogs we draw the line at lobsters you know so uh, again I think if you can definitely draw some irony from that in much the same way that yeah if a, a villain is showing an act of kindness to one of his minions for example as unlikely a scenario as it is I think it would be a good sort of ironic device the only thing I could think is that that could be a form of propaganda to show dehumanization of the like non-desirables because it would suggest like in a hierarchy that like let's say Germans were at the top and then, then you have then you have lobsters and then underneath that you have like all of the undesirables mm, perhaps yeah commit atrocities against so I don't know I would need to do more research into that to, mm. to know why they were doing that like the only other thing I can think is that it's like national socialism like yeah let's help ourselves and if our animals are happy and good then they can be happy and help I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know it's very strange mm. I just thought it was a very interesting sort of uh, observation to make like I said just given what we know they did and, yes. uh, uh, and yet there they were oh no don't you know don't beat your dog you'll uh, land yourself a, a nice little prison sentence for that I'm definitely going to talk to my my uncle is like an expert about mm. like World War Two and what happened with the Nazi regime, so I'm definitely gonna um, like ask him about that because mm. that's like extremely interesting and very strange. Yeah, you know, I read it somewhere in one of the books that I have here, so uh, I'm not the only person who thinks it. Uh, if he turns around <laughs> and if your uncle turns around and says, "No, that's bullshit," then whoops, you know, blame the writer. I just read it. Um, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they can be merciless even to the innocent and this is this is the kind of villain that I like as someone who is the complete opposite of what we just discussed you know there's no there's not a kind bone in their body and uh, there's no, really if anything in their opinion there's no such thing as innocence either that uh, I mean it can you can draw things like paranoia into it that you know everyone is conspiring against them even if they've mentioned their name in the wrong context so much as mentioned their name in the wrong context then yeah there must be a conspiracy against them and uh, they can get tarred with the same brush as you know all the people who overtly oppose them um mm. and that's the sort of villain i like i like sort of harsh and ruthless and again that's quite is quite fun to write you get to sort of uh play around with uh well how harsh and ruthless you want to make them i guess if it's like a um, an overt villain, as in they're, they're well known, mm. not just towards, not just for the protagonist, but like globally doing that kind of stuff as well. I always view it as like a form of reputation building. Like, oh, if you cross me, this is what will happen. It doesn't yeah. matter who you are, this is what will happen. So I always think that like their mercilessness is part of their mm, kind of like not an act necessarily, but always part of 
just, I don't know, reputation building, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, we've got the last few now. That they are persuasive. And again, I think if it's in the case where they're trying to sort of rally people to their cause, I, I think of where I'm uh, I'm not going for classic literature tonight. I'm sort of geeking out a bit and I'm drawn to uh, Magneto when I think of uh, someone of a persuasive villain rallying other people to his cause to fight on his side as opposed to uh, the supposed forces for good. But then again, I think there are other antagonists out there who do quite well on their own. Often antagonists, if they do have a following, it could be because of, as previously stated, like they are merciless. So mm. fear of just random acts of violence is quite persuasive. So is yeah. money. They often tend to be powerful in some way, normally financially as well. Yeah. And money is very persuasive. Like, very persuasive. Like, <laughs> people are persuaded by money on a regular basis. Hmm. That's interesting, actually. You don't hear of sort of like poor but powerful villains and, you know, working, in their opinions anyway, working class hero. Yeah, like in, in high That's fantasy, you normally have like the idea of the, the farm child versus the the rich, like, lord or yeah, the evil aristocrat. King. The evil yeah, king. exactly. Even gods, you know what I mean? Mm. So they tend to have some social pull. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just sort of immense power. Again, it's what I come back to saying what I was mentioning about the odds are so are stacked so high against these, as you say, farm children um, <laughs> yeah. who, uh, despite everything, still manage to uh, emerge victorious. But, uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> now then, here's a, f here's a fun one. They will stop at nothing to get what they want. So, uh, I mean, I suppose you could almost inject extremism into this. That even when uh, I think I even think of when henchmen sort of start to, you know, they get the the cookie crumbles for them, and uh, they think actually, oh no, boss, this is too even for us, this is too much kind of thing, and you know, oh well, if you don't like it, I'll kill you, and that's fine, you know, not letting anyone, regardless of whose side they're on, get in their way. That is an important one because again, I think if they came around very easily to getting dissuaded from their way of thinking, from their motivations, that they would be quite a crap villain, really. Mm, I agree. They do tend to be ideologically focused mm. and very unwilling to be reasoned with or bargained with. or yeah. they, It tends that they have quite binary thinking. Like, this is how I think and this is what I want to do and I will action upon it. Yeah. Whereas... Um, the protagonist or the hero normally goes through stages of growth yeah they'll start off either in a position of lack of knowledge or lack of power or whatever it is and then they'll they'll change and adapt and grow throughout the trials that they go through whereas the villain tends to be at the end of their road pursuing yeah. the final hurdle or the final step towards their goal yeah i agree it's not so much an arc for the villain unless you're following their journey at the same time as the protagonists you know they're very much at the end of the story or just at various points and we don't really track the full development that's where that's where origin stories and prequels get sort of spawned yes. you know we get to see that outside of the uh, the core now these last few are um we've got they're proud they're deceitful 
and then there's they're vengeful and the last one as well is that they're jealous especially of the hero but we'll leave that one to last so we've got they're proud and they're deceitful and they're vengeful which i'll just sort of treat as one whole thing i think i don't really think any of that is necessarily needed no i wouldn't say so any one of those points to motivation which is kind of one of the core the cornerstones of creating a villain is why do they do the things that they do is their motivation you know are they motivated by revenge are they motivated by pride and an unwillingness to admit that they've done wrong in the past and they're just going to carry on you know are they motivated by deceit again to sort of protect their reputation perhaps or to to overthrow an old regime or or you could, i mean i think it would be quite a an extreme version of a villain to have all three of those things in one and you if anything, you sort of risk losing the relatability of the reader through trying to put too much in one antagonist. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Because uh, I don't know if you know, there's a, there's a psychologist called Carl Jung. Yep, of course. Have you heard of Jung? And then yeah, he, he did this thing called uh, The Shadow. Uh-huh, yep. And I think everyone has a shadow, but if you add prideful, hateful, vengeful if you add too many things then it becomes unrelatable because it's like i have i have a shadow i don't have like 12 mm. <laughs> like my shadow doesn't eclipse the world do you know what i mean yeah unless i'm maybe like pans ram or something like that but yeah. i think the average <laughs> the average human has an average shadow so if yeah. you inflate the shadow of the the villain too greatly they just they don't even seem real inside a fictitious piece of writing yeah they become unbelievable and that's sort of where we have to you have to draw a line somewhere in short it's they, funny um, you brought that up because again Jung is somewhat and specifically the shadow idea is something else that I cited in my dissertation that's really funny that you uh, that you I do like Jung mm. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned motivation and I actually uh, there's something called Maslow I might be pronouncing that wrong Maslow's hierarchy of needs it was like a human nature paper written in I think 1945 or 1946 and it just like outlines different types of human motivations and I think like villains tend to not always need them and if they do it it cruxes upon like the one that I would view as like weakest so basically the five things is like uh, physiological needs which would be like eating food being Mm. warm being safe and then there's like safety needs which would be outside of that it's like making sure you don't like just live somewhere that's gonna explode or whatever sure. and then there's love and belonging so having friends and family and then there's self-actualization and then there's uh esteem yeah and i tend i tend to think that uh villains normally have either low self-esteem or they've been rejected by friends and family that tends to be the two motivating factors for them hmm because they tend to kind of have all the other stuff. And he makes a, a distinction between internal and external motivators. So, like, external motivators would be things for survival, and internal motivators would be things for, like, personalized progression, which is, again, like, finding love or learning something. And interestingly, getting revenge is one of the things that's considered to be an internalized motivator. Mm. Well, I mean, in, in a sense, I suppose revenge is... A means of redressing the balance against rejection or against injury to one's self-esteem. Oh, that's really the, um, interesting. 
there's like a, another really in, like, maybe it's not interesting but i find it interesting the first thing on the list of needs is that an antagonist will be opposing the physiological needs in some way that's like physiological needs are considered to be like a core need mm. and then when i was looking up the definitions of antagonist it's quite interesting that there's there's a different definition for antagonist and for villain yeah the second definition for antagonist is a biochemical one and it's a oh. substance which interferes with or inhibits the physiological action of another so it's like villains it, so i know it's biochemistry and literature aren't necessarily connected but it'd be a suggestion that maybe the villain is not which they're normally trying to destroy the survival of the protagonist mm. like well in harry potter he's actively attempting to kill harry or in the ring uh, not the ring that's a completely different thing <laughs> with uh, the lord of the rings the ring wow um well technically that too they mm. are trying to uh to kill the pseudo protagonists but in lord of the rings that if sauron gets the ring they're going to bring about the age of darkness or whatever it's called mm. which is going to be terrible for everyone's survival i just thought that was quite an interesting which would, would you like me to read you the the uh, the other two definitions between villain and antagonist because they're kind of interesting yeah no go for it and like the, the canon antagonist definition is a person who actively opposes or is hostile to someone or something, an adversary. Mm-hmm. And then a villain is a character whose evil actions or motives are important to the plot. And then the secondary definition of that is just a criminal. Oh, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so anyone, anyone who's a bit criminal could be considered villainous, maybe. Mm. Yeah, no. I, the latter point, I would, I have heard, I have heard it used in that context. I think even in Lord of the Rings, Sam tells Frodo that Gollum, you know, you don't see it, do you? He's a villain. Ah, yes, I think he does say that. Yeah. Mm. You know, in that sort of context, and uh, it does get. I do use the term in that context more in Sin and Secrecy, which uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna read some of in a in a bit, not right this second, because uh, we have one more point, uh, which is uh, that. They are jealous, especially of the hero. Now, I cannot think for the life of me of an example where that's true. Hmm. I was thinking about Anakin Skywalker again, and he's jealous because Obi-Wan's a master and he isn't, and things like that. Or that Obi-Wan was with Padme and he he was like, oh no. Mm, What happened there? Yeah. (laughs) I guess maybe with like if you take like Voldemort versus Harry you have like family trauma Voldemort but then he has family trauma Harry like Mm. hmm. but only because of Voldemort though yeah so I never in all the things that I sort of uh, when it came to Voldemort jealousy was never something that I ever or, or even some of the other antagonistic characters not necessarily the villains but the antagonistic characters like Snape for example Again, I never really took jealousy. Uh, I think I think in his greater backstory, spoiler alert, there may have been some jealousy involved, but uh, in his hostility towards Harry Potter, it was more out of bitterness. Yeah, jealousy is a strange one. Because mm. the only thing that I can think of is like that they're jealous of an ideal that they're seemingly unable to obtain. Hmm. Like, for example, like, Pan's around, maybe he did all those horrible things because he, he didn't ever see himself fitting into society. Hmm, maybe. And then, although it's like a... Like, that that jealousy could, could be replaced probably better with bitterness, like you said. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think it goes... Jealousy is a weird one. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. Uh... Yeah. So uh, I think, in short, with all that, with that entire list, I I think uh, I went in saying that it was a decent and cohesive list of uh, of things to have in a, in a villain, and uh, I think we've uh, basically torn it up and thrown it in the bin. So uh, sorry about that. For I any... do think uh, including many of them would make a good villain, though. Oh yeah, but without a doubt. But too many would be a bit too much. Especially, you know, the way it's been set up as a checklist. That sort of indicates to me, anyway, that you've got to put them all in there, and that would just be yes. that would be ridiculous, if nothing else. Yeah, I'd like especially considering some of them directly contradict, like the well, yeah, have an act of kindness, kindness while also being completely merciless. Mm, exactly. It's like that's like that's like petting a cat until it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of, uh, I, we mentioned arrogance briefly before. I say I, I mentioned arrogance briefly before, and there's also a complacency, particularly when these antagonists are at the supposed height of their power. And I find that that they make for good antagonistic traits: arrogance and complacency, uh, especially when these people they're amassing more and more enemies as the story goes on. And that's something that I wanted to make sure went into my books, particularly sort of in the closing act of Sin and Secrecy, my villain Abel Sturkwistle. By this point he's taken very much a uh, a similar sort of track to uh, Dickens's Mr. Tulkinghorn in Bleak House. He's throwing his weight around and he doesn't care who knows it. In his opinion he's number one and no matter who or what dares to speak out against him, he is convinced that no one really has the balls to go any further than utter empty threats. Now, I have a passage I'd, uh, I'd like to read to this effect, if you don't mind. So yeah, of course. Th this, is, uh, this is Abel as he's just concluded that his friend, Mrs. Haffersage, may have been secretly conspiring against him, and he's uh, about to confront her. So, Good morning, Mr. Sturkwistle, she greeted him sweetly. The mouse had scuttled straight into the cat's jaws. Good day, Mrs. Haffersage, was his deceptively warm response. A moment of your time, madam, if you are not so very pressed. Not pressed at present, I'm sure, Mr. Sturkwistle returned Mrs. Haffersage, but you know Mrs. Ermstone as well as I. Any more than five minutes later than planned, and she'll be summoning the constable and a search party. She chuckled a guttural chuckle and walked closer, with Abel meeting her halfway in the street. He leant in, his voice now conveying none of the affection with which he had begun their conversation. Would you like to tell me why Andrew Tresswood was bothering you at the funeral yesterday? At once Mrs. Haffersage felt her heartbeat come to a halt. The very words she had dreaded from the very man she feared to speak them. Nonetheless, she hid her inner horror behind an innocent facade. Bothering me? I'm, sh I'm not sure what you mean, sir. She rather foolishly lied. Oh, come now, Mrs. Haffersage. The menace did not disappear from Abel's voice, intensifying with every sentence. We're old friends, you and I, are we not? If you are carrying the burden of a secret, it would do you well to confide it, especially when it concerns another. Another such as I? Please, Mr. Sturkwistle, I really muster enough of that. Out with it, woman, or I'll shake it out of you. The old man was now bereft of patience, even if he had not afforded Mrs. Haffersage a moment in which to explain herself. What are you and that little bastard hiding from me? That's quite enough, Mr. Sturkwistle. A third entrant came upon the conversation, speaking in a much calmer voice than the other participants. Abel looked around and regarded the broad figure of Ebenezer stood within listening distance of Mrs. Haffersage, whose usually unflappable demeanour had been visibly shaken 
as she stared at the ground. You may stand down, Mr Devonshire. This is no affair of yours, Abel attempted to dismiss him. Quite the contrary, sir, returned Ebenezer, undaunted. I observe that you are distressing Mrs Haversidge here. And as near neighbours, is it not Barrelford's custom for the townsmen to look out for their townswomen? Abel glared at him, seething that he had been thwarted so publicly. I think you had best be on your way, Mrs Haversidge, Ebenezer said to her in a low voice. I fear Mrs Ermstone will be pulling her hair out, wondering where you are. Yes, to be to be sure, Mrs Haversidge returned with a nervous chuckle. Then she bade them both good day, averting her eyes from Abel to the last, and hurried off towards Porchester Road. Ebenezer then stood before Abel square on, looking the old man up and down. Very solicitous of you, Devonshire, Abel remarked, his upper lip curling. But you're a damn fool to think it will serve either of you well in the end. I'm not afraid of you, Mr. Stirkwistle, returned Ebenezer. I know you have most of the town quaking in your very presence, but I don't count among them. As is your prerogative, the old man quipped. Just have a care not to delude yourself into thinking you can protect Mrs. Haversidge, or Andrew Tresswood and his little friends. Ebenezer put his hands behind his back, secreting the fact he was clenching them both into fists, primed to strike the old man without an ounce of shame if he gave in to his temper. They all belong to me, Devonshire, Abel went on sinisterly, quaking in my very presence, as you so eloquently put it, and that's how I want it. Loyalty can always be expected from those that fear you most, and there is a price to pay for disloyalty. I'll pay nothing, Ebenezer remained dismissive, and your tyranny will come to an end sooner than you suppose, I think. Is that a threat? Abel was almost incredulous. No, it's merely my belief of what may soon come to pass, sir. Then let them try. This person or persons you believe capable of opposing me. I hate to think that that was not recorded, but it was, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I would like I would like to read your books. I definitely need to. As a good as response as any. <laughs> My goodness. Mm. Now we spoke. Well, we didn't rather. I was hoping we we might, but we didn't speak about uh, any projects earlier, Josh. But uh, and at the end of these episodes, I do like to find out a little bit more about my guests as writers, if applicable. Now these don't necessarily pertain to uh, specific projects. But I would like to ask you a couple of questions, beginning with the sort of what is the sort of your favourite character or characters that you have created, or what sort of characters do you like writing the most? I enjoy comedies. The majority of the fiction I have published is uh, comedy. Everyone is a buffoon in my constructions. Mm -hmm. I haven't written a long form novel. I've only written probably like short stories and novellas. I see. And many of them have been meme-themed disses. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had uh, some political satire. Yeah. Amongst other things. <laughs> I see. So yeah, buffoonish characters then. There's no, never really been a hero. No. Or a villain. Everyone's just comedic. Yeah. Basically. I do have plans to write my own. Uh, high fantasy series of course amongst other things and de there should definitely be some villains within that well yeah and i mean <laughs> you've definitely got plenty to sort of go on off the back of this episode one would hope now yeah i'm uh torn between writing the main series or the prelogue series oh yeah so it's pretty pretty difficult to choose which one to go for first mm. like i constructed a villain that i liked so much i wanted to write there their backstory first yeah kind of no that's good in a, in a way it means you've sort of dedicated yourself to fleshing out this character in full um 
Whereas I think in a lot of cases, people sort of write these characters and the uh, the fleshing out happens in the course of the process. They don't know absolutely 100% everything before they start. I think I may probably start with the antagonist backstory because I found like a niche yeah. and I love niches. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if... I'll, probably, I'll probably start with that. Mm. Well, if they work, then uh, fantastic. I would like to know what authors you draw inspiration from, if, again, applicable. Depends what I'm writing, Yeah. really. Because I write, I write a wide range of things. Yeah. If I write poetry, I like Shakespeare and Petrarch. I'm not a big fan of modern poetry, but if mm. I am going to write something more modern, I like Ezra Pound, a little bit of T.S. Eliot. Not a big fan of The Wasteland, though. If I'm writing horror, I like Lovecraft. I'm not a big fan of Stephen King or Poe, which a lot of people, they like those two, but I like Lovecraft. Don't just know as, why. Just as well we're not on Twitter, I could see a hell of a lot. If we had a Twitter and our listeners wanted to get in touch, I, I can imagine that uh, turning a I'm few... I'm emo enough up. without Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I like uh, Orwell. Mm-hmm. I like uh, Philip Roth a oh, lot. Yeah. So you've got it. Yeah, I like, like a lot me. of stuff. You've got a, you've got a sort of a diverse. Uh, I was about to say portfolio, but that's not the right word. Yeah, you you draw inspiration from a number of people. From a number of people. When it comes to writing high fantasy, though, now seeing as this is going, wants to be your uh, your main medium. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that I like. Uh, yeah. There's a guy called, I think it's Brian Sanders. Okay. I'm probably saying that wrong. He he did the Mistborn series. That was good. There's a guy called R. A. Salvatore. He did the. Uh, the Underworld Drizdoerden books, they're pretty good. I, I must confess I've never heard of the high fantasy not being my my go-to genre, of course. But uh, the, the what? There's, a, there's just a, there's a, a lot. Like, mm. if you want to... There's, there's a book series called uh, The Godling Chronicles. It's uh, by Brian D. Anderson, The Godling Chronicles. I see. That's a really good high fantasy book if you want to explore race. So is the uh, Drizzt Oerden books. Right, okay. They, they, because it's, it's much more easy to discuss race when the characters are, for example, drow elves, which are like dark dark elves, or wolves, or just elves themselves, like elves versus human. It's much easier to talk about race when it's in a more detached manner. I see. I find. So I find them to be quite good racial studies. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of high fantasy. <laughs> I've read too much. <laughs> well, I don't think there's any such thing. Um, Josh, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with us on this occasion and all the best with your high fantasy and other projects. Thank you very much. And thanks once again to Josh Finer there. In addition to the autobiography of Karl Panzram, Josh also recommended from a high fantasy perspective The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. Josh regarded it as the freshest thing in the fantasy genre, so anyone who's interested in that, uh, head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy there. And as ever, speaking of picking up copies from Amazon, I ought to plug both of my novels, The Barrelford Scandals, Lust and Liberty and Sin and Secrecy, which are both available in both Kindle and paperback versions, depending on your preference. And uh, don't forget that if you would ever like to appear on the show or know someone who might, or indeed if there's anything you'd like to suggest as a topic for an episode, get in touch via social media. I'm on Facebook under Dalehurst Author and Instagram at Dalehurst underscore author. 
The Dalehurst Writing Show is a fortnightly podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and otherwise follow the Dalehurst author channels that I mentioned. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and YouTube. And regardless of which channel you subscribe to or follow, uh, you can find updates relating to this podcast and all my other author goings on. Uh, Until next time, however, thank you very much for listening.